Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is James Miles, CEO and co-founder of LiveX, and we'll be discussing data and trading for investment-grade wines. James, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I'm a fan of the show, so it's a real honor. It's great to hear. We always uh, we always love having a... No, it's great. I think, you know, it's fantastic when people take the time to tell stories in wine. I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think you do a very good job of it, so... Oh, thank you. Could you give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and your history in wine? Sure. I mean, I got into wine, I suppose, out of curiosity more than anything else. When I got into it, I didn't know much about wine or much about the industry, to be fair. To give you a bit of background, I mean, one of the ironies the ironies about it is that actually, while my father wasn't in wine, four generations of my family prior to that were actually all in the wine trade. We had a Madeira bottling and shipping business and a brewery on the island of Madeira. So I think it's some kind of is possibly in the blood, but I've never really woken up on any day and decided I need to sort of get into the wine trade. So it, it was a kind of creeping hunch that led to LiveX. But my background is that I I was born and grew up in Hong Kong. I was mostly educated in, in the UK. After university in the UK, there were literally no jobs. The pound had just crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism, which was a sort of precursor to the to the euro. And there was a massive recession here in, in the early 90s. And so I went home, I suppose, to Hong Kong, and I got a job in finance. And it was an incredibly exciting time because China was opening up and Hong Kong's manufacturing base was moving across the border into, in, into mainland China. Southeast Asia was booming. And there was a huge amount of money flowing into that part of the world. And I got, I suppose I got caught up in that as a very young 20, early 20 something person. It was an incredibly exciting time. And I suppose, you know, whenever you get big flows of, of money, you also get an interest in wine. And I, I guess that was the first time that the expatriate Chinese community started to get, get the wine bug. And so, you know, in the early 90s, a huge amount of particularly Hong Kong and Singaporean money, Taiwanese money to some extent, started flowing into wine. But I guess the, the expatriate communities in Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia were also getting into it. And they were mostly focusing on top Bordeaux's and, and the price of those wines was starting to go up. And I'm not quite sure why, but I ended up owning four cases of Lafitte 90. And actually, rather forgot about it. To be honest with you, I, mean, I know that sounds <laughs> that sounds a bit blasé. I mean, Lafitte ninety wasn't nearly as expensive then as it is now. And on the eve of the, or actually just after the, the Asian markets finally crashed, and the crash was pretty spectacular because the Indonesian market, for example, 
fell 98% in, in dollar terms, and which is fairly staggering. And I, I, I rang up a, a friend of mine who was a broker in London and managed to sell my Lafitte pretty much record prices. And I thought, that, that seems a bit weird. You know, I mean, Hannah said, you know, the, the whole reason for this boom has been Asia, and Asia's just absolutely collapsed. So that really piqued my curiosity. And I guess that was 1998. And, you know, over the next couple of years, my friend Justin Gibbs and I would, would talk at length about the wine market. And, and we, did, we had quite a few friends in the business. So we, we sort of we chatted to them about it. And one thing led to another. And suddenly I found that I'd got some software built in Hong Kong and I was doing the rounds of wine merchants just to test this crazy idea that perhaps there could be an exchange for wine. And, you know, of course, the Internet came along and suddenly we thought, well, hang on a sec, we can distribute this information and this platform for free, or at least that was the, the idea. And the more we looked into it, the more we felt that wine and stocks were actually remarkably similar. I mean, that's quite a strange, might seem quite strange, but, but both of them are very, very fragmented in terms of products and players. And, you know, our notion was that as a result of that, they shared many of the same problems. And many of those problems have been solved in finance. They really hadn't been solved in wine, which was still a remarkably opaque, inefficient and risky market. And we thought if we could build this exchange, it would it would have a material impact on on the wine trade. And and so that's kind of how we got into it and foolishly left our very well-paid jobs in the city of London. I was back in London by that point in March 2000, just ironically as the dot-com boom reached its absolute peak. And we launched with 10 customers in July. So that's broadly the story. I mean, Madeira never goes bad, so it probably stays in the blood for many generations. <laughs> well, finally, they still, you know, they still bottled Miles Madeira, actually, the Madeira Wine Company. I mean, my family's business has long since folded, sadly, but they still bottle Miles Madeira, and we still buy it as a family. And it's, I've got some in my fridge, actually, at the moment. It's not bad. I highly recommend it. <laughs> there we um, go. It's, <laughs> it's definitely hot, too. The, the investment uh, value of that has probably gone up dramatically as well. I, I guess it might have done, yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can start for those who don't know, what exactly is LiveX and what does it do? And, and just to be clear, since people are listening and not reading, LiveX is spelled L-I-V hyphen E-X. Sure. Possibly a lot of people don't know this, but LiveX is actually an acronym for the London International Vintners Exchange. And we pretty much do what it says on in the name really we're, we're still based in london we're very international in outlook we've got customers in 42 countries vintners which as you'll know is an old-fashioned english name for wine merchant is the customer we serve and exchange exchange is what we do i mean in in modern parlance i think we describe ourselves as as a marketplace for businesses that buy and sell wine what are what are customers come to, to us for is to find out what's going on. So they, they come to us for our data, analytics, and our insights to help inform their trading decisions and try and work out what's going on in the market. And they also come to trade, to buy and sell, to leave some stock on the platform, to leave some buy orders on the platform, and to really find opportunities to trade. You know, LiveX is an end-to-end -end solution. So we're not 
just doing the price discovery element and the trading element, but we also have a big logistics footprint with warehouses across Europe and regular, you know, we facilitate a lot of shipments to the US and to Asia. So, you know, we, we are involved in the complete trade and we we do stand behind and guarantee the trade as well. So that, I guess, is where we're a bit unique compared to, to other people in the marketplace. But we decided early on that we weren't going to compete with our customers. So as a result of that, we don't deal with the consumer or hotels and restaurants, any of the end users. We don't trade stock on our own account and we don't represent the producer. You know, we, we're not involved in the primary market at all. We're purely involved in the secondary market and we don't take an allocation of wine from anybody. So independence is really, really vital value for, for us as a business. I have to imagine it's a difficult, uh, a lot of companies struggle with uh, keeping that, that segmentation. We, we, we are highly idealistic as a, as a business, it has to be said. And, you know, I guess we, we passed up lots of opportunities along the way. But, you know, it's been a clear commitment to our customers that, you know, we're not going to compete against them. You know, and as a result of that, I think they probably share more information with us and we build longer lasting relationships with them than than we would have done if we'd gone after the consumer or the hotel restaurant or started to represent producers, which at the end of the day, that you know, trading stock, facilitating trade and representing producers are the three things that our customers do. So we've tried to avoid those those areas where we can. So for the trading side of things, you have over 580 merchants on the platform. How does trading actually work on LiveX? So it works. It's an order matching system. So customers come and they place their buy orders and sell orders on our platform. And what makes us a, a bit distinctive relative to the rest of the market that is that if you put a, a bid or an offer on LiveX, it's absolutely rock solid firm. So you can't say, oh, oh sorry, James, look, I sold that. You know, can I cancel it? So that was a kind of entirely new concept to the wine trade because as you probably know, most people trade things subject to availability, which means you can kind of list things at any price you want because you can always have sold it if someone comes and asks you. And I guess one of our first innovations was to create a standard contract for wine trading. So when you when you look at a price on LiveX under our standard contract, you'll know the condition that you can expect the wine to turn up in. You know when you need to pay for it and you know when it's going to get delivered. That creates huge economies. So, you know, I think that those are our, our very distinctive points. But the order book works on a queuing system. So your order will queue first by price and second by the time you arrive. So you could have five different customers on the offer at the same price. But the lowest price on the offer and the highest price on the bid will always be front in the queue. And that's broad, broadly how it works. So it is a continuous system. There will always be a price on the platform. It's not like it's an auction that closes at any one time. You know, it's always open, if that makes sense. And what are the core categories that get traded on LiveX? Is it, is it specific regions, specific brands, specific age ranges, or, or anything rare? Well, if you'd asked me, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I, you know, I would say it's incredibly Bordeaux-centric in, let's just say, 2010, it's like 97% of the wines we trade were Bordeaux. The, the top 11 wines were top 10 Bordeaux plus DRC was probably 70% of our business. But that's changed completely over the period. I mean, we've seen an enormous broadening in trade. If we were, say, trading 1,000 commodities 12 years ago, we're now trading 15,000 commodities. 
and really were trading wines from every single region you can imagine and sub-region you can imagine. And I guess that's come at the expense of, of Bordeaux, in a sense, which is, which is now mid-30% of our trade. But what's that, what that's done, I think, is made us a lot more interesting to a much bigger universe of wine merchants because 10 years ago or so, we were mostly selling ourselves to Bordeaux specialists, whereas now we're, we're, we're obviously trading a much, much broader group wines and vintages although the nature of our business means that our trade is more focused in younger more higher value higher volume wines i guess than than say you, you'd find at auction and if so if you had to do a breakdown today obviously you gave us a breakdown of if you had 100 wines that are being sold on average what would the breakdown look like today like if you had to give some ballparks to like regions um, yeah so bordeaux would be you know like 35 percent oh wow um, that's a big change yeah, it's a, it's a huge change. But Burgundy would be high twenty percent. Champagne in Italy would be around ten-ish percent. California has grown a lot over the last few years. So, so those would be the main the main regions. Then, obviously, Rhone, and you know the rest of the world. You know, four or five or six percent, something around something around those those levels. France is still enormously still enormously important to us. You know, France would be around seventy seventy five percent. Of our total trade, but you know, certainly Italy, California have become a lot, a lot more important than they were. And where are the merchants located that are buying these wines? And and has have you seen that change? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, you know, we, we started very much in the UK, and the UK dominated our business for for quite a period of time. We then built a business in Bordeaux <laughs> for obvious reasons. You know, we were we were very Bordeaux centric as a business, but over the last. You know, I mean, actually, the UK is possibly now 35% of our business in terms of income. Europe's probably 40%, the US, 15%, and Asia, the remaining, say, 10% of our business. And th- those numbers may surprise you a bit, but, you know, the fastest growing parts of our business over the last five years have been, firstly, the US, where we've seen probably a tripling from a relatively small footprint to a much bigger footprint than right now and actually Europe as well which used to be very much the second to the UK but is, is now and, and strangely Asia has actually been the slowest growing market which, which you might find strange but you know that the main reason for the Europe is still so important is that most of our European members are both buyers and sellers on the platform whereas in the US and in Asia they tend to be mostly buyers although we are seeing a lot more selling out of the US, particularly in you know the top US wines, and you know it's a really recent and pretty exciting trend, I think, and one we expect to continue to grow. Look, I mean, if the three-tiered system didn't exist, one would imagine that LiveX would be based in Chicago, <laughs> but it just happens that you know for a for a number of historical, geographical, regulatory reasons, London really has been the clearinghouse for for the global fine wine market for a long period of time. I and mean, we've literally been Bordeaux's biggest customer for 800 years. There's this huge history of trading wine in this country. And we've got a fabulously diverse and open and free, relatively liberal wine market here. So all the right conditions are in place. And of course, you know, a lot of global money in the UK as well. And, and as we're doing now, we can talk to California and Tokyo in the same in the same day and all of those things. Of course, the English language as well helps. So all of those things are, 
but really, really important. When you can keep the wine pre-sales tax in London and in Europe now, uh, we heard as well from some of our prior interviews, which I think is more challenging in the US. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the inborn system here is a huge bonus for us. You know, we're, we're clearly storing wines for for customers all over the all over the world in the UK. And so that gives us this enormous base of, of stock that we can trade off. It's, it's a massive advantage for sure. So how much volume of wine is traded on the platform uh, in maybe like cases per year or something like that? And has that grown a lot? Because given Bordeaux kind of went down as a percentage, but did it maintain volume and it was just everything else grew? Or you know, how, how does that work out? We've seen enormous growth in the tail if that makes sense so you know a lot of our growth has come in the lengthening the lengthening of the tail livex on its current run rate is you know on an annualized basis is trades about 100 million pounds 120 million dollars of wine a year which you know i think in absolute terms in fine wine terms that makes us you know amongst one of the biggest players on in the world for sure and certainly you know in the b2b secondary market space you know we're definitely the biggest <laughs> but you know in in absolute terms uh, or in relative terms you know there's I, I don't know what that is maybe you know five to ten percent of the global market let's just say the, the exact size of the global market is is debatable you know and I, i'm really talking about secondary market trade here i'm not talking about you know prime you know and for me, for most of our customers a a huge portion of their trade would be selling the latest, greatest thing, you know, the new Bordeaux vintage or the latest release from Champagne or Burgundy or whatever it happens to be. And of course, most of our customers also have a much more mixed sales channel. You know, we're just really dealing with wine merchants and professional traders, whereas most of our customers would have a mix of end users who they sell to. So so yeah, and I but I think you know the exciting thing is that you know clearly the primary market you can only sell in the primary market once for obvious reasons, whereas you can trade an infinite number of times in in the secondary market. And our mission has always been to really make, as I sort of hinted at, at the beginning is is really to make the, the fine wine market transparent, efficient, and safe, because the opposite of those things opacity, inefficiency, and risk, the three things that stop people trading with each other. So that's what we obsess about at LiveX, is just working out how we can remove those bits of friction from the trade, realizing that actually by doing that, you increase participation and confidence in the market and you increase the size of the market. And it's really the secondary market that's going to benefit from that. So, you know, I, I would say that the secondary market's growing at least twice as quickly as the primary market. And Clearly, you know, if it's thirty to fifty percent of the size of the primary market at the moment, I, and I, do, I don't, I honestly don't know the exact numbers. I mean, I'd love to know, but I don't. You know, if, if the same thing as happens in financial markets, as happens in, you know, or something happens in wine, as happens in financial markets, and at some point, secondary market will be substantially bigger than the primary market. So. So I think it's an exciting space to be in. Yeah, the the big difference is the stock in, of wine goes down over at least a specific wine goes down over time in secondary market. It, can't, well, could go down if people are buying it back, but relatively stays fixed or grows. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess there is an element of truth in that. But, but you know, what we would have defined as tradable secondary market wine 10 years ago is very different to what we define it today. So I think that overall stock has, has increased a lot. And equally, they make a new vintage every year, right? So, so all the wines are diminishing, but the absolute, absolute supply base is probably 
actually increasing. Demand is is increasing faster than that supply at the moment. So so hence prices are going up, which is good news. You said it was about 120 million pounds a year today. Is that a lot? About 120 million dollars, so 100, 100 million pounds. Now that's in terms of the, the wine value that we trade, yeah. Versus like 10 years ago, is that a big difference or in 2010? Funnily enough, the, the transactions on our platform pretty reliably grows 20% every year. But the profile of what we've traded has changed a lot. So if one goes back to 2008, Nine ten, the market was kind of crazy, you know, for Bordeaux, and we were trading a lot of Lafitte. I mean, at some point, you know, Lafitte was forty five percent of our business some weeks, and that was largely on the Chinese market. So that was kind of a crazy, crazy period of time, and and we actually peaked out at that point about at fifty five million pounds, even though our trade is maybe four or five times higher now than it was then, probably even more than that. The value of our trade is lower than it was just simply because. We're trading a much broader selection of wines, and the uh, so the average price of the the wine went down since you're trading more. So, so the average value of the trade went down. You know, and the other thing is is that of course the producers have been packing. Twelve years ago, almost everything was packed in a twelve pack, and now as prices have gone up, things have, in six packs or th- even three packs, and if it's DRCs and it tends to be bottles only. So you know that's had an impact on the average size of our transactions. So the lengthening and widening of the tail is just all those huge skews, as you said, a thousand wines to fifteen thousand, and trading more and more over time. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. There was a sort of five or six year period where our average transaction side was falling like ten, fifteen percent a year, twenty percent a year. So that was quite that was quite heavy deflation, as it were. It wasn't really that prices were going down; it was just that the nature of our trade was changing. But the number of transactions on the platform is going up, which is great for an exchange. It's mushroomed. It's mushroomed, yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked about LiveX being a part of the secondary market. Another big part is like auction houses, which play a different function because they sell directly or mostly to end consumers. How does LiveX, in your mind, differ from the function that an auction house plays? You know, I suppose that the the mechanism is, is very different. And I think, you know, it's quite an important differentiation is that auctions tend to be sold by the lot one lot is can be very different to the next and even in in the same auction there can be wide variances between one lot and another lot that might be due to different conditions that might be because of certain competitive tensions within within the auction room itself it may be that the people in the auction don't necessarily know what they're what they're up to it might be that there might be a level of inebriation also in some auctions that might distract from you know the the, the price of that ends up getting paid. Whereas with LiveX, let's just say on the price of Lafitte 2017, the market's always open. There's always a bid and an offer on that market. It's all professionals, and so I think the difference, the, the big difference is is in kind of that on LiveX, our data and our trading and the availability is all real time. It's it's current. It's standardized and it's actionable. You know, it's a, it's a big difference between LiveX and actually the rest of the market, if that makes sense. And I guess, you know, the, our mix of trade is is quite different. The auction markets tend to be more focused on the kind of unicorn type stuff. And, you know, ours is more varied and more mixed, I guess, and much more diverse than theirs would be. You know, it's interesting, but clearly auctions are very, very important in the US and to some extent in Asia, but in, in Europe, the merchant market is, is much, much bigger and much, much more important. So, you know, I guess 
the, the merchant market in, the, in Europe would be at least 10 times bigger than the, than the auction market. And I guess it, the auction market has survived to some extent in the US because of the, the restrictions that are in place, you know, and, and, and the three-tier system. And as a trading platform, how do you think LiveX differs from WineSearcher? So, I mean, the, I suppose a big difference is that we provide an, an end-to-end solution. We have the price discovery piece. And again, you know, our information is real-time, whereas they've got list price data, which is generally out of date the moment it gets posted. So, and, you know, you can't negotiate the trade on wine searcher and they're not going to organize the logistics for you. So if you're sitting in San Francisco and the wine's sitting in Copenhagen, that's complicated. Whereas on LiveX, you can just hit the offer or take the offer. And within a few weeks, it's going to be in our warehouse, would have been checked, photographed, and we'll be consolidating it ready for shipment to either Bone or, or to California. So it's, a, it's a quite a different kind of service. You know, ours is really an end-to-end solution, whereas WineSearcher is a fantastic tool and incredibly useful, but we do have different strengths. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that when you go to place a bid on something, you know that that product is there. Uh, That's not always true on WineSearcher. The availability part is huge. How do you actually guarantee that is that if someone doesn't they get kicked off the platform or is that or is it something that you actually have you know taken on the product first like how do you know that that product is definitely there ultimately livex stands behind the trade so so you know if, if our customers let us down then ultimately we're, we're going to supply the wine but you know i mean i think the the reality is is that for most of our customers we're, we're either their biggest supplier or biggest customer or, or at least one of their biggest suppliers or biggest customers. They want to deal with us tomorrow and the next day. There are only so many mistakes they make because it, it's pretty painful if you sell a wine at the wrong price or you, you sell a wine you haven't got and you've got to buy it back in. So it is a fantastic advantage that we've got. There, there, it's also been a painful process in order to make that stick in a wine trade that wasn't used to dealing under those kinds of disciplines. But I think you know, it definitely took us a much longer period of time to build the business than, say, Wine Searcher. You know, it's really worthwhile because it does create that huge amount of value in terms of real time pricing, real time availability, which you just simply don't get anywhere else. And you also mentioned condition of the bottles, the provenance was something that you guaranteed and backed as well. And so, how that seems like a huge logistical part of your business as well. Can you talk a little bit about like how you ensure provenance based on how the bottle was recorded, not only from counterfeits and fakes, but also just condition because you are dealing in some older vintages? Yes. Yeah, so, it's a, it's, it's a, as you say, it's a big investment and it's, it's multi layered. In the first instance, you know, LiveX is really a club. So to, to join live, you know, it, it's a membership exchange. When you sign up, you go through a, a process of due diligence where we have a look at your financial. You have to prove you're a business to start with. We will have a look at your financials. We'll do credit checks. We'll take trade references. And once we have the data together, we've got to submit that to our membership committee, which is made up of people from LiveX and from elected members of the trade. We've clearly got a process of account managers or a system of account management, which ensures that we get to know our customers really well. We get to really understand their business and where they're buying their, their wines from. We've got various algos that, that assess the risk and those sorts of things. So, you know, both pre and post the trade, you know, we're pretty aware of what's coming, coming through our ecosystem. And we I guess, open up probably more cases than probably anyone else in the world. We, we opened up some like 80,000 cases last year, photographed them, authenticated them. And we've also got quite a number of initiatives 
data sharing initiatives with you know our customers, particularly in the UK, around problems that they're finding and that kind of stuff. So, you know, certainly since since Rudy, I think we we're, we're all taking that issue a, a lot lot more seriously than than you know if I'm frank, we possibly were historically, but. You know, then again, we we weren't really trading the kind of unicorn wines that that Rudy was offering. But that doesn't mean to say that you know there aren't DRCs or Loire that aren't being counterfeited from modern vintages. Of course, there are. So you know, we we're on high alert for those sorts of things. There isn't a silver bullet, but you know, we we're really doing everything we can to to, to try and solve that problem. So we'd love to dive into the data LiveX is producing as well. It's got some of the most renowned indices for fine wine pricing. What are the various indices and, and how do they work? So the, the indices have evolved over time. And actually, it was it was rather interesting. We write a monthly report and um, Justin and I, in the early days, used to sit down and wonder what on earth we'd write you know, this month. And I decided one time, or, or we decided one time, to, to try and put an index together. And we came up with this idea for the LiveX Fine Wine 100 Index, which was, it was designed to track the most traded wines on, on the market. And we applied a sort of production and scarcity weighting. So rather than just taking Le Pain, which makes whatever, 300 cases, and Lafitte, which makes 20,000 cases, and just calculate the change in price, we multiplied the price by the number of cases to try and come up with a kind of production weighting. And then we would effectively depreciate that over, over a period of time to, you know, to take account for the, the fact those wines being drunk over, over time. You know, and we, we price, price the index off our, off our platform, largely off the mid price based on the, the bid offer spread on the platform. And this, this idea just absolutely took off. I mean, you know, we just couldn't believe the impact that had and the press really got hold of it and ran with it. And actually, for years and years, people thought we were an indexing business. I, don't, I think a lot of people didn't know actually what we did. So it was a sort of slightly a mixed blessing, I guess. And then, then you know, as the markets broadened, we've we started to we 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 launched a much broader LiveX one thousand index about ten years ago, and that is actually price weighted. And there are about five hundred. It's it's basically a hundred wines, last ten physical vintages. And you know the, the nice thing about the thousand is it, it kind of breaks down into into various regional indices. We've got so Bordeaux five hundred, a Burgundy one fifty, a Champagne, I forget, you know, hundred or whatever. And so there, there are a thousand wines in this index, and it's much more representative across a broad, the, the kind of broader array of wines that we're currently trading. So is the data for the indices only from transactions on the LiveX platform, or is there other data that goes into it from other? you know, secondary trading things. So, you know, inevitably we don't have a market or, you know, a competitive market necessarily in every single wine, although a large portion of the wines in the index, we we would have a a reasonably tight bid offer spread. We take the the mid price between the spread as the price and we track that mid price from month to month. If there's been a transaction within the spread, during that month, then we'll take the transaction price. And if there isn't a, a sort of sensible price on the platform, then we will draw upon, you know, those prices which are being offered in the wider market, you know, amongst our membership. And failing that, we've actually, you know, we've got a valuation committee that look at, look at, go through each price every month to make sure that it's, 
it's right and it's accurate and it's sensible. So it's a combination, you know, it's a kind of pr- pragmatic combination between live real-time pricing and the, the principle that actually it is a very, very diverse, fragmented market and you're not necessarily going to have a very active market in every single one every month. So that's just a reality of, of, of the market we're dealing in. Well, and, and given that fragmentation, as you said, that creates some level of illiquidity in a lot of the the pricing and the trading of these wines. Do you have a sense, and I know this will vary by specific wine and the volume they make and how much they're traded, but how deep is the market or what's that like liquidity for certain types of wines or, and you know, how much do we have to buy before like the price starts changing dramatically? Well, we, you know, again, you know, as with the broadening, we've seen a massive increase in the number of live markets on our platform over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. So we, we now have a market in a firm market in tens of thousands of products every single day to a value of, let's just say, $120 million. And behind that, there's, you know, our customers are advertising about a billion dollars worth. So, you know, and these guys are looking at the platform every day. They're being sent notifications when there's activity in wines that they might be interested in or they might have on in stock. So it's a pretty deep pool, to be frank. We think about 90% of the market is looking at LiveX every single day or you know every single week or whatever. And, and I guess the answer to the, the price elasticity question is, is reasonably obvious. You know, I mean, for a young Bordeaux first growth, then, you know, actually it requires quite a lot of money to move the market if it's, if it's Loire Moussigny, you know, and they've only made one barrel of it and it's highly sought after, then it doesn't take a huge amount of interest to, to really drive the price upwards. And, and that's true, not just on Libex, but as the market as a whole. And I think that's the point about Libex is it just really um, represents what's going on in the marketplace. It's, you know, we're not determining what the price levels are. That's really been determined by the market and by our customers. So you mentioned some of the factors that the industry is tracking in terms of price and obviously the production level. What about provenance in terms of how does that factor into the pricing data? Because we've heard from the auction houses that the provenance has a huge swing in terms of what the bottles can realize or cases can realize on the auction market. I'm curious on how that factors into pricing for LiveX. Well, for the sort of wines that comply with our standard contract, younger vintages in their original packaging in good condition, very little difference you know, almost zero difference. So, you know, a, a late release of Chateau Le Tour might, you know, sell at a 10% premium. But when you when you come when you come to resell it, no one's going to pay you a premium for it in the secondary market. Clearly, that's very different for, for older vintages. Outside of our standard contract, we have a special contract, which is effectively a tailor-made contract for effectively wines that don't quite fit into the straight jacket of, of standard contract and that might be 61 Latours straight from the from the Chateau and original box you know wines like that would would achieve a, a, a decent premium you know or, or big bottles in a rare vintage for example with, with immaculate provenance um, but clearly in that kind of an instance you're having to provide a lot more information that is provided for on the platform and you can do that but as I was saying you know for sort of kind of us our stock trade last 10, 15 vintages in good condition, the original box, you know, whether it's all of its ex-chateau at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you know, does it really make a difference if it's lying in perfect storage conditions in 
in London or at the Chateau, the wine tends to, as far as the market's concerned, achieve the same price in both scenarios. So you're seeing a lot of the whole world of wine in terms of how it's trading and wine pricing. What regions or brands are getting the most traction or having the most change, whether it be up or down? Yes, yeah, so Bordeaux has clearly been lagging the market for a while. And you can see that in the data, just it's losing market share. It's pretty much lost market share every every year for the last 12 years. Prices have, have lagged behind. And the, the big winner in that process has really been um, Burgundy, of course. And to a lesser extent, uh, Champagne and Italy. Champagne Italy obviously also benefited from US tariffs and they performed really well on the back of that. So, I mean, that's where you're going to find the top performers, really. I mean, within our indices, it's there are no real surprises of the kind of wines that, that, that have done really well. I mean, the DRCs, the, the Rumiers, the Leflaves, those kind of wines have, have done well. Outside of our index, anything with a a hint of Loire in it has done incredibly well. When I first got into the business, you couldn't sell Maison Loire for, for love or money. And uh, even that seems to somehow got caught up in it. I don't know whether that's a sort of misunderstanding of what it is. Or, but anyway, I mean, that's possibly slightly speculation gone mad. And things like Arnoux Le Show is sort of up four times this year. Something used to be like £25 a bottle is suddenly like thousands of pounds a case. And people slightly scratching their heads trying to work out what's going on there. But Charles Le Show apparently... Work, once worked for Loire or something, you know. <laughs> so there are some slightly crazy things that are happening. There have been champagnes like Jack Salos, which have, have done incredibly well. Salon has gone up a lot. And the top Italian names have done well. Barolo, I guess, also sort of shares some of the same characteristics as, as Burgundy. You know, it's made in smaller quantities. Quite a number of Barolos have done really well as well. So, so a lot of that... You know, speculation, as you said, and some of those things have been fueled by a macro environment for financial markets that has done very well. As that macro environment today looks like it may be changing or shifting, both with you know central banks pulling out liquidity, Brexit, tariffs, war, inflation, etc., rising interest rates. Do you have a, any perspective or thoughts on how that might impact the the wine market? The the wine market's proved to be a lot more resilient than than my sanity, I'd say. You know, I mean, it's been unbelievably disruptive the last three or four years. I mean, it's just like totally nuts, actually. You know, Brexit, tariffs, COVID, the war, inflation, all those kinds of things. But, you know, to be fair, wine has, has sailed through that reasonably smoothly. You know, I think for as long as there's an environment where you've got interest rates at 3% and inflation at 10%, physical assets is going to be a pretty sweet place to be compared to fiat currency or securities. You know, I guess at some point the Fed and other central banks are going to catch up with reality and that situation is going to change. But but right now, I think, you know, things look look pretty good. You know, I'd, I'd probably caution that by saying, you know, wine is cyclical like like everything else. And it, even though it has proved to be a fabulous investment over, over a long period of time, the price does go go down as well as up. <laughs> you know, some of these crazier things in the market around, you know, some of these Bur- Burgundy names, you know, might 
might be a bit sensitive to to a change in that in that, that environment, but we'll we'll just have to wait and see. Well, the the wine investment as a as an investment vehicle has been seems to be growing rapidly. Uh, we did a whole series, uh, episodes seventy three to seventy five, where we talked to the key players, and a lot of them mentioned that they were using LiveX data. I'm curious on how, how do you see your partnership, or how do you see them as customers for the LiveX data, and how do they leverage it for for informing their wine investment businesses? I, I think we're we're an important partner to them because you know they clearly use our data and insights and analytics a lot in their in their marketing in their investment decision making process they use the liquidity available on the platform to get in and out of positions and many of them also use our logistics services as well particularly now that that a lot of our services are available via API it does give you know our customers the ability to be able to provide or offer LiveX services to their customers in the same way as you might get access to a stock market from Charles Schwab or, or Robin Hood or, or whatever. You can now, you know, a lot of those guys are now allowing private customers access or collectors access or even investors, whatever you want to call them, access to LiveX liquidity in a very automated way fashion and so that's quite a powerful new trend you know whether that's data or trading or logistics you know so yeah no i mean i i would like to think that we're an important partner to them for sure you know as as we are really with all of our customers and you know i think it probably surprises everyone that actually the investment customer is probably a smaller part of our overall business than, than many people probably realize actually you know the the a, a lot of the bit, a lot of our business just is 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 fulfilling normal end user demand and those sorts of things. So. You know, you mentioned you're tracking any, previously a thousand wines, now fifteen thousand wines. How do you define a wine that you should be tracking, or how are you defining what is an investment grade wine? So, yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I I've always tried to simplify that by just saying, you know, I think that 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 any wine with a secondary market is an investment grade wine, just to make it simple. I, I'm sure it's, it's it's a bit more nuanced than that, clearly. To boil that down, does that mean if your customers want information on a wine that you're not tracking, that is like how, what's defining like which ones you're going to be tracking? If, if you have multiple requests? Yeah, I mean, to, to be clear, we, we, we track many, many more than 15,000. We, we, we're trading 15,000, but, but, you know, we're, we're tracking, I think, 350,000 different commodities, you know, so, which is, really the complete universe of our of our customers actually our customers probably have 200,000 different commodities being labeled vintage pack size at any one time but over over the 20 years we've been doing it we've 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 collected prices and data and information on about 350,000 different different quantities so it's a pretty broad range you know we see that universe you know any wine that our customer wants to trade or offer is is a wine that we're interested in and you know we've we've clearly also now developed well we've we've been developing actually for the last eleven years a database of descriptions called Elwin, which is linked to a unique identifier. You know, in in a world of um, APIs and automation, the key missing piece of this is that actually there isn't a unique product code in the fine wine sector or the wine sector. And so 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 that is a, a solution that we've developed to try and solve that problem so that that your machine and my machine both recognize Lafitte Rothschild as Lafitte Rothschild. Because currently pretty much everybody in the wine trade has their own description and their own product code. Right. 
So in order to to make that link, Elwin is a key part of that. Key part of that. So going back to the any any wines investable if it has a secondary market, I guess then grokking from your merchants, what do you think defines a wine that should have a secondary market then to like drill it down one more layer? You know, I, I guess that the way most people would answer that question would be to say that the brand the brand needs to be be well established. Um, it needs to have a decent credit score. Historically, they might have said ninety points, and now they probably say ninety five points or above. It's got to be, you know, I think there's there's got to be some limitation to production. So, you know, I think those those sorts of sort of general brand. It's got to have a strong brand. You know, that there's all all of those kind of things really, and I probably would have argue, argued the same thing. But I but I think that it's it's you know that, that those arguments actually kind of break down after a certain point. So maybe rounding out the LiveX business, what is the business model of LiveX? How do you actually make money for trading? Is it you're taking the bid ask spread, or is there a you know commission for trades, or how how does that work? So there are there are three elements. We we charge a membership fee or a subscription to use the service, and the price you pay is dependent on the features you have access to and the amount of data you're consuming. On the one hand, and then there is a there is a trading fee. So there's a, there's a commission between two and three percent, which we charge both both sides. And then there's a settlement fee, which covers the sort of logistics costs, a per unit cost to cover some of the logistics costs and those kinds of things. But overall, we're taking about 5% on average out of the trade, you know, roughly 2.5% each side, which is clearly substantially less than other routes to market. You know, if a wholesale trading might, might take 10 20%, an auction house, 20 to 30%, and a, an importer or an agent, like 30% plus, you know, we, we, we really are the, the cheapest route to market out there. And we can do that profitably really because we've got this balance of income between the subscription side and, and the trading side and the logistics side, which kind of, you know, allows us to, to be super competitive on, on, on the trading piece. So is the, you know, membership subscription fee part of the data or is there a separate data subscription service or data service that people have that's a different part of your business? So the, the subscription, the data piece is all wrapped you know, wrapped up in a subscription. So, you know, we have a kind of a good, better, best model, subscription model, and then we have a sort of tailor-made package for our, you know, super users effectively who are really using a huge amount of data and doing a huge amount of trade. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the amount of money you pay in subscription is really wrapped up in how you're using our data effectively and what tools you're using. And equally, you know, how many APIs you're connected to you know, effectively, how important are LiveX services to your business, and you know how much value do we add? Does that mean only merchants on the network who went through the process of getting approved can have access to the data, or could you know, I don't know, journalists or other data services also plug into the data by by access? We do work closely with many journalists, many publications, and we do share data with them and license data to them as well. Bloomberg and Reuters, for example, list our indices on their on their terminals. We we have a lot of relationships with universities and those kinds of things. And yes, you know, you, you can you can sign up to our data without going through the membership process. So the membership process is really there to protect people on the trading side. 
more than it is around the data side. So, you know, there are a number of producers, for example, who who subscribe to our data because they want to keep track of what their brand's doing in the secondary market and those kinds of things. So, you know, we do have about 60 or 70 kind of businesses that that aren't trading who are just, just subscribing for from a data perspective. So about 10% of our users. It's probably a bit too expensive for a consumer to use. We did have a consumer-facing seller valuation product. We actually sold to Venus. And so you can get access to LiveX insights and some of our market reports and those sorts of things and some data to value your seller and portfolio or whatever through Venice and many of our customers of course because you know many of our customers will store lots of wine for their private collectors and we supply the data that allows them to provide you know data and insights to to that customer base as well so we really are a wholesaler we're not we're not a retailer if, if we're, we're selling our data if you're getting access to our data as a consumer then you're getting access to it through a license that you're merchant has taken out in order to allow you to to share that data if that makes sense james uh thank you for that deep dive on livex we want to wrap up the episode on a more personal note and we were curious on what was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with well i probably drink much less fabulous wine than i should drink actually i reckon but um the the bordelais are fantastically generous and and so i have drunk some been you know lucky enough to drink some amazing wines with producers and negotiate on Bordeaux, for example. But I think, you know, for me, one of the most special bottles was in lockdown in the UK. It was my wife's 50th birthday, and we weren't able to really have the celebration that we wanted to have. But but I was able to, through my contacts, manage to get some pretty, you know, special bottles of wine, including a bottle of Richborg 70, which was an Avery's bottling, because Pre-joining the European Union, English merchants tend to tended to buy wines in in cask and bottle them in the UK. And so, I suspect this wine was cut with a possibly a little bit of port, or maybe you know a little bit of Spanish wine or something. But I drank it just on a beautiful summer's early summer's evening with my just my family. And you know, I think that's that's really what wine's all about. It was a spectacular bottle of wine and with people who whose company you really enjoy. And for me that that's what that's what wine's all about. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you for sharing that personal note and thank you for sharing so much wonderful information about what your business does and how it informs a lot of the merchants that are, are hopefully listeners to our show. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks, guys. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.